Um, let's pray together. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, I pray that you would give us strength to hear, humility of heart to receive, and willingness of heart to believe and obey. I pray for your servant that I would have strength as well to communicate your word with power and strength and clarity so that these precious ones here and those listening online would go forward from this place with boldness and fresh courage to worship and serve you this day and week. In your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is one of my favorite pages from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis's famous uh, children's story, which honestly gets better the older you get. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He, he is the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle uh, the white queen. All right. It is he, not you, who will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into a stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into a stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, uh, it, it would be the most she could do. No, no, he'll put all to rights. As it says in an old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asks Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that is why I brought you here. I'm to lead you where you shall find him, said Mr. Beaver. Is is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan? A man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without his knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. He is wonderful. But that doesn't mean he is safe. He is not like a man. Not like 
us who have this changing nature about us. As, as you have noticed, this is Youth Pastor Appreciation Sunday. We were going to do this last week, but I was sick. So, as you may have guessed, instead of donuts and coffee out back, there will be Mountain Dew and Doritos for you. Very excited to be here. Uh, this gives you a chance to look inside of youth ministry and see what we do. And, and in youth ministry, we are all about discipleship. That is, purposeful relationships to do spiritual good for our young people. We aim to constantly extend the free and clear gospel to our students. And we also aim to not shy away from the hard questions that they may ask about who God is and what He is like. I I love student ministry for this, actually. Uh, These students often ask these questions that us adults are too afraid to ponder, perhaps. Questions like, how can I come to God in repentance and faith if God is sovereign over everything I do and unchanging? How am I going to change Him? What hope is there for someone like me if God is kind of, so to speak, spring-loaded in wrath against me? What if I'm honestly just afraid of God? What if He just doesn't strike me as safe? He is scary to me. These, These are good questions. And let me tell you, if these questions lead you to prayerful uh, inquiry uh, through God, to God, and through His Word, these are good questions. But if these questions cause you to harden your heart and move away from God, these are bad questions. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel we're going to be in. 1 Samuel 15 this morning. In God's Word, we, we find Him revealed before us. He is very different than the kind of gods that mankind puts up. When man makes gods, they are weak. They are changing in their nature. For example, the Greeks had a pantheon of gods that were very, very much like sinful man, right? They were ruled by their passions. They were always driven this way and that way by envy. They were capricious in their anger. They were immoral in their marriages, At least they couldn't see everything and know everything because you could kind of hide from these gods and escape them. And if you offered a sacrifice that was big enough, they'd kind of ignore you or be pleased with you. At least they were kind of weak like man is. The same thing was also true with the Canaanite gods of old that Israel had to deal with more of in the book of First and Second Samuel. These Canaanites also had a pantheon of uh, pathetic and passioned gods. Uh, for example, probably the god you're most familiar with is Baal, or Baal, however you want to say his name. He was known as the, the storm god, or the god of the thunder. You can get a, a picture for what kind of... Uh, state his emotional stability was in. Um, He was always angry, always needing to be placated, always given to lust. And once again, at least you could hide from this God. At, At least you could kind of sneak around him. At least you could kind of throw some sacrifices at him that would kind of subdue his rage and his wrath. But the God we find in the Bible is very different than the gods we see in our culture today or yesterday. 
Listen to a few of these um, verses that I'll read about our great God. Uh, first off, from Psalm 102, 25 through 27, we see that he is a creator that will never perish or fade. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, it says, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you, you are the same, and your years know no end. Never change. Or, or look at this verse from Numbers twenty three nineteen. He is not a God driven by mood swings. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill? God is not driven by moods and passions like we are. He is not parts and pieces like us. Or as we see in our passage, 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, it says, And the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, nor is he like a man that he should have regret. Why? Because everything God does is perfect. As Psalm 18.30 says, His way is perfect. This God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord proves true. This is your God. Never regretting. Never changing His mind. Always doing the right thing. Never needing an eraser. Even with the week you just had. He does not need to change. His way is always perfect. But just for giggles and laughs, let's just keep reading here in 1 Samuel 15. You'll notice something strange. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 11, it says, Of the Lord, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandment. And then over there in verse 35, you read, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, which is it? Are you changing your mind, or are you not? This isn't a typo, I don't think. I don't think the biblical author is trying to sneak something by you, because he's doing a really lousy job of it. I mean, same chapter. Put it in a different book to say something contradictory like this, right? Same chapter, he's saying two different things. And I would say that the Bible is trying to tell us something intentional here about our unchanging God. And our passage here is going to guide us in a truer knowledge of who God is and how we relate to Him in obedience and repentance. So my simple goal this morning is to maybe change your mind a little bit about this passage, how you read this passage, how you respond to this passage. Maybe flip this passage upside down for you so that you will never be able to see this passage or passages like it the same way again. We're going to move through our passage and just ask a few questions. The first question I'm going to answer is, what do we make of this God of requirements? You'll understand that question in a few seconds. And then another question we are going to ask is, what do we make of this God that we see in this passage of revenge? And the final question we're going to seek to answer is, what do we make of this God of regret? So those are the questions we are going to answer, Lord willing. First off, what do we make of this God of requirement? This is the simplest point. You'll you'll understand this in a moment. 
This is, this is, you could say, the expected point. You already know the answer. The answer is that God requires full obedience. He judges disobedience. You're very familiar with this. This whole passage is just really a running dialogue. This chapter is a dialogue between Samuel the prophet and Saul the Lord's king. We hear this word repeated over and over and over again eight times. We hear the word listen or hear or obey. It is the key word of this passage. It can refer to either hearing hearing things with your ear or, or, or obeying those things. The same word means the same thing in our passage. I'm going to read the first couple of verses here of our chapter and kind of familiarize ourselves with it a little bit. Uh, verse, uh, verse 1, And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now let me just stop you there. Let's just, let's just talk about this a little bit. In, in context here, if you're an attentive reader and you're reading through the book of 1 Samuel, you'll notice something peculiar. You'll notice that we have just passed the uh, kind of a biblical obituary of sorts of King Saul, right? If you are reading in 1 Samuel 14, 47 through 52, you see this long kind of summarization of King Saul's reign and rule, all the things he did. These are the kind of conclusive statements that usually come, though, at the end of a king's reign, right? Right when the king dies, that's normally when the narrator puts this stuff in here. What, what should we make of this? Because, uh, believe it or not, Saul goes on to live another 16 chapters. I don't, I don't know how many years that is, but 16 chapters is a long time in Bible, Bible time. So right in the middle of his life, we see kind of his obituary of sorts. I would say, from this point on, King Saul is a spiritual dead man. He is a dead man walking, so to speak, in God's perspective, and the narrator's trying to kind of give us this hint. He has already, in 1 Samuel 1, 13, uh, lost the promise of a royal dynasty. And in 1 Samuel 14, he has lost the respect of the people and of the army. And now here in 1 Samuel 15, he's going to lose something else. He's going to lose his throne itself. God's going to tear it away from him. Saul is a dead man walking spiritually. So, what is the first thing Saul is commanded to do, though? We, we see that he is commanded to wipe out, very harsh words, wipe out the Amalekites. And first off, the first question you should ask is, why? What did the Amalekites ever do to Saul? And notice first, it's not Saul that's supposed to do these things. It's, it's the Lord that's telling Saul to do these things. God remembers how Amalek, the Amalekites treated Israel on the way out of Egypt. Just a little history lesson. The Amalekites were a, a nomadic tribe that roamed kind of the region between Canaan and Egypt. They had, their main trade was livestock. What, what Saul would have seen on this trip, he would have seen a, uh, not just kind of a hobby harm of a few, uh, sh uh, sheep and goats. He would have seen a, a national, a national treasure of animals. The, these people had, had, had tons of flocks. 
They were wealthy. And all of these were what Saul was called to destroy. Uh, these people were also well documented in their evil. They, they're notorious for their cruelty. Matter of fact, the spies back in Numbers 13 were afraid of entering the land because of the Amalekites. They also fiercely stood against Israel when Israel was trying to enter into the promised land in Exodus 17. The Bible records that their actions were a lot like cowardly terrorists, actually. Instead of kind of attacking uh, straight on in formal battle, the Amalekites, they kind of skirted around and tacked Israel from the rear, where the weak and the elderly were traveling. Uh, Deuteronomy 25 says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Uh, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you and in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This is the Lord's command in his word in Deuteronomy. One of the last things he says, do not forget what Amalek did to you on the way out. They attacked you from the rear. And notice uh, Samuel's specific commands here is just what the Lord said in Deuteronomy 24. Do not spare them, verse 3. This is conquest language. If you read through the book of Joshua, you'll see this again and again. Uh, attack them. Do not spare them. Do not leave anything. It sounds merciless, and it is. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But how did Saul respond? How did Saul obey? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay it and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. I don't need to explain this passage to you at all. The answer is, Saul didn't fully obey, right? You, are, you know this, you're a parent, you understand when your child obeys you or not, and Saul did not obey. And then how does God respond? We see in verses 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And then we see Samuel respond, and Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord, all night. And, and we see here what will be a series of exchanges now between the Lord's prophet and the Lord's king. We will see four distinct exchanges between the two. Uh, four times God's prophet now is going to come to Saul and challenge him with his obedience. 
and four times Saul will respond. And I want you to pay particularly close attention to how Saul responds to the Lord's challenges. The, the first exchange I will title the sinner's deflection of guilt. First, we have Samuel's inquiry of Saul's disobedience here in 12, verse 12. We see, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And notice first there in verse 13, Saul comes to Samuel, assuming he has fully obeyed the Lord. He comes cheerfully, in fact. He comes unsuspecting of any problem. His spiritual deadness leads him to conclude that he has just performed the commandment of the Lord. And notice in verse 14 what Samuel says, I am not hearing with my ears perform the commandment of the Lord, right? Samuel is not hearing obedience. He is hearing disobedience because he can hear sheep. And then under this first exchange, we also see Saul's deflection, deflection of guilt, deflection of his disobedience. Verse 15, Saul says, uh, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Notice, always classy, right? Uh, they have done it. it it's them. It's, it's these people. Saul blames them. And, and just by the way, we need to acknowledge that in verse 9, the narrator blames both the people and Saul. They're both to blame. But notice who Saul's blaming. And they're the ones. But notice how he dresses it up a little bit, too, to make it look good. Notice he says, we have spared. We, we have spared. He is cloaking his disobedience in mercy. This is me being merciful, kind of like how I was with the Kenites. And then in verse 15, notice he dresses it up in more obedient language. We spared these peop- these things to to sacrifice to the Lord. Hey, we may have done wrong, but at least admit, Samuel, we, we meant well. We meant well. We meant really well. You have to ad- admit that. That's the first exchange. The second exchange is, I will title, The Sinner's Justification of Sin. And in this heading, we see Samuel exposes Saul's disobedience. Uh, verse 16, Samuel goes on. Uh, then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Notice there, Samuel asks two questions, both both starting with why, why. Uh, Both of these questions reveal Saul's guilt, both negatively and positively, right? You didn't do this, and, and you have done this instead. 
And notice how Samuel describes Saul's wonderful, merciful, sacrificial actions. Oh, none of the sort. Verse 19. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? This is language of a vicious predator who is ripping, dragging, and devouring. Saul is described here as one who is, who is jumping on the opportunity of God's judgment in another's life to profit personally. He's jumping on the Amalekites to fulfill his own lustful, greedy appetites. That's what Saul's doing. We don't have here in this chapter a picture of Saul the merciful. We have here a picture of Saul the lustful. That is who Saul is before God. And under this exchange of the sinner's justification of sin, we also see Saul's justification of his disobedience. Why is Saul so blind about his sin? Look at this in verse 20. Look at his blindness. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Notice there, verse 20, Saul Saul still can't seem to see his sin. As a matter of fact, he emphasizes here his obedience. And he also, in verse 21, says the people, once again, he blames them. If there is sin here, it's them. And verse 20 is most curious to me. He mentions that he has brought Agag. Saul includes Agag, sparing Agag in his kind of summary and his defense of his innocence. What what does this mean? Well, I mean, usually in those times, uh, what people did normally when they took out a nation or something like this, they would kind of capture the, the enemy king and they would put him in bondage and this would kind of show their dominion over that nation. Hey, we've got your king in jail. That really means we beat you, uh, right? Uh, Saul is basically doing what every king and every nation would do, right? This is, this is what taking out a nation looks like. Matter of fact, that's who Saul is. He is a king just like the other nations. But the point here that we shouldn't miss is Saul is blind because he is bringing an alien definition of righteousness or an alien definition of obedience to God's definition, right? Uh, he's saying, this is, of course, what you meant, right? When you said go wipe out the Amalekites, you didn't say all the Amalekites, right? Nobody does that. What you meant was, hey, take Agag, capture, and bring him back here and kind of use him as a trophy of war to kind of decorate your monuments and things like that. You know, that, that's what you meant, right, God? And many people want to argue with God in a very similar way, do they not? They say, I have lived an acceptable life to God. I mean, I've never killed anybody. I've never been like that guy. But God doesn't accept our alien standards of righteousness. He accepts his commands. He accepts his standard of righteousness, as as we will soon learn. A third exchange here, we see the sinner's minimization of sin. We see Samuel's 
revelation of what true obedience looks like. Now God's going to say, this is what obedience looks like. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Verse 22, to obey is better than sacrifice. To hear than the fat of rams. Here we get a lesson on God's requirement. Uh, Samuel isn't, by the way, saying, hey, sacrifices don't matter right? Offerings don't matter. He is saying, hey, external works, external sacrifices only matter if your heart is right along with those things. Or or to say it may be a a stronger term, superficial, self-defined, incomplete disobedience is like, or obedience is like disobedience in God's sight, right? You can say, I'm obeying God, but if it's superficial, self-defined, it is like disobedience in God's sight. What is obedience that God looks after? He looks at the obedience that comes from a true heart. It doesn't matter how many sheeps or bulls or good works you bring. Compare these words of David's repentance in Psalm 51. 51, 16-17. David says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That's Saul's revelation of his obedience. But remember, this is the sinner's uh, minimization of his sin. And look at what Saul does. By the way, to minimize means to intentionally reduce or lessen the extent of a wrong. It's like, it's like somebody who gets really mad at somebody and says, Oh, I just get, I just get frustrated sometimes. I want to kill you, but I just get kind of frustrated sometimes. Or, or a husband that says, Hey, I just like to look at girls every once in a while. What's the matter? You're minimizing your sin. Look at Saul's minimization of his sin. Verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because, because, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Oh, Saul finally confesses, but notice the way in which he confesses. He, he's speaking the right words, but his heart is exposed. He's still blaming other people. And look at there in verse 25. Paul really exposes his heart. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Uh, Saul's confession here rings hollow. Why does it ring hollow? Because of what he is after. Saul isn't actually concerned about his sin before the Lord. He is simply concerned about losing his position in life. He's, he's, he's concerned about uh, the consequences of his sin, you could say. I've sinned. Now, let's get rid of the consequences of my sin, right? He's saying, okay, okay, guilty. I confess. I sinned. Now, now that I've confessed, we can, we can put that all behind us. Samuel, let's, let's go back to ruling the nation. Compare this to David when he was confronted by the Lord's prophet in his sin. Second Samuel 12, 13 says this. This is David's confession of his sin. 
I have sinned, period. That's all he does. He doesn't add to it. He doesn't expand on it. He doesn't blame anybody else for it. He says, I have sinned. We come now to the fourth and final exchange. We see the sinner's uh, minimization of sin's consequences, not just of the guilt of sin, but now Saul is going to minimize the consequences of his actions. First, we see Samuel, uh, Samuel's revelation of the rejection of Saul. We've already heard him start to say these things at the end of verse 23, but now in 26 he says it again. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And then verse 29, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God has exposed the inside nature of Saul, the external perspective of Saul, the, the, the bankrupt spiritual position of Saul. He has exposed this, and he has shown that Saul was never God's choice of king. Yes, Saul looked great on the outside, but the inside is what God looks at, and this is what God has revealed. And then in verse 27, we see this metaphorical thing, this tearing. And we get a sense here that Saul is desperate, right? It takes a lot of desperation for you to go to the Lord's prophet, grab him by his robes, and tear the robes to keep him near you because you're so desperate. But, but what does this mean? Is Saul now serious about his sin? I don't think so. Notice Saul's minimization of sin's consequences. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord, your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Notice once again, he says in verse 30, I have sinned. But once again, Saul seems to think that confession just means repeating words. Notice with every exchange, uh, Saul's motivations become more apparent and they, they come up to the surface more. God's rejection in verse 26 is not as significant as God's tearing away of the kingdom from Saul. That is what is moving Saul. Now let me stop here and ask a question of you. I don't know about you, but when I read through the narratives in First and Second Samuel and the Bible, sometimes I, I ask a question of Saul. I ask a question of the Bible's treatment of Saul. That, is God being a little bit unfair to Saul? This is always what I ask myself. God seems to always be putting Saul right in an impossible situation. If you if you're familiar with the the story of Saul at all, you'll you'll understand this. He he wasn't going to work from the start, right? We all know that. He's from Benjamin. Benjamin's not getting the king, right? We've read Genesis 49. We know Benjamin's not getting the king. He's the people's choice, not God's choice. Also, when you look at the way God deals with Saul and his sin, 
God seems to deal with Saul's sin differently than he deals with David's sin, right? Is God just giving Saul the, the short end of the stick? Matter of fact, when we compare David's sin, David's sin is much more egregious than Saul's sin. I mean, come on, God. You're really being unfair to Saul. Uh, David murdered and, and committed adultery. Saul just kept a few people from getting killed. I mean, that doesn't seem like on the same level of sin. Answer is, of course, no. God is not showing, showing favor towards David in, in that sense. And God also is not putting Saul in an impossible position. Uh, God has already said that he would give Saul an incredible opportunity to have a dynasty. Chapter 13, 13 spells this out. God was willing to give Saul something incredible. Maybe it wasn't exactly the Davidic kingdom, but it would have been something incredible. And the reason Saul is continually rejected by God is not because of just circumstances outside of his control. No, the reason why Saul is continually rejected by God is because Saul, like we see in this passage, continually rejects reconciliation with God himself. Yes, Saul lost the kingdom, right? But he didn't lose a chance to be reconciled personally to God. What I'm saying is this. Notice what Saul isn't saying here. Okay, you can take my throne. You can take all of these blessings from my life, but I'm still a man. Can I still be reconciled to you, God, on a man-to-God basis? Can I still be a beggar in David's kingdom? Can I, can I still have a right relationship with you, even if I don't get all of these bells and whistles? Saul isn't like that at all. He's concerned about one thing, things and position. That's all Saul is after. And, and the lesson here is that this is not, not about a man being caught and a help, as a helpless cog between a rock and a hard place of God's sovereignty and predestination. That is not what we see in the story of Saul. We see that Saul's problem is Saul himself, right? This is Saul's heart by itself. This is a heart that wants nothing to do with God. It just wants things from God. This is, this is all on Saul, not on God. And what does, what does Jesus say? To bring this to a New Testament perspective, what does Jesus say about those who God calls? I would remind you of John six thirty five. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall no longer hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. But verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Who are those who are called? Who are those who are given to the Son by the Father? Those who come to Jesus. Those who come to Jesus hungry and thirsty. And they say, you know what? You can have all this world. I want eternal life. I am hungering for eternal life. I may lose everything, but I want Jesus. Those are the people that are given by the Father to the Son. And those are the people who Jesus himself says, I will never cast out. Here's, here's the rock and the hard place Saul is caught between. He is caught between God's command 
and his own lustful heart. That is what Saul is caught between. And this is the basic message of God's requirement. Uh, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. There you go. But you may have noticed that I so delicately skirted around two massive issues, apologetically and theologically, in our passage. So let's move on to this. Let's ask another question. What do we make of this God of revenge? What do we make of this God of revenge? Just to emphasize this point, look at verse 32. Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel, verse 33, said, not on your life. As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Before the Lord, an act of worship to God. And to jump back to verse 3. Go, strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. What, What do we do with this God of revenge? Now, first off, I would kind of define, devote to destruction in verse 3. This means to place under the ban, to make spiritually off limits, so to speak, to completely wipe out any trace of these people. This would be an act of faith and obedience in God because, hey, we're wiping out all of these sheep and these oxen and we're trusting in you to provide. Remember, um, this is a word that's used heavily in this passage six times. This word, devote to destruction, is used. So this isn't a word that our author is ashamed of. And this word is used 14 times in the book of Joshua. So this isn't a word that the Bible is particularly ashamed of. This is conquest language. Israel is commanded to fight this way against the people of the land. They're called to be instruments in God's holy war. This is God's revenge. What do we make of this? Well, first off, let me say, this is this type of warfare was a direct response of God to a definite and accumulated sin of the Canaanites. For example, Genesis fifteen sixteen promises the land to Abraham and his descendants in the future, but he says, not right now, for the iniquity of the Ammonites is not complete. It's like God is saying, I have a measure of patience towards these sinners, and they will soon come to the end of this that they are provoking me to, but it's not now. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to give them more chances to repent, but it's not now. And by the way, the the evil of the Canaanites is well documented, including um, both uh, Scripture and archaeology reveals their sins were heinous sins. And it wasn't just sins like idolatry and wicked injustice. Their sin included incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, and the like. Uh, notice also that this isn't just a sin of past generations. This is a sin that is still going on. They still are sinners, according to verse 18. This is, this is a uh, type of warfare that is the direct uh, response of God's judgment coming. But this is also a type of warfare uh, that was critical for Israel's spiritual protection. Now, you probably understand this if you've read Deuteronomy at all, but God said, wipe out these nations so that, in Deuteronomy 7, he says this, they will not 
provoke you to sin. You will not intermarry with them, and they will cause you to turn from the Lord your God. And we see in the book of Judges, right before 1 Samuel, what happens when Israel freely mingles with the people. They are a disaster. They are a disaster to themselves, and they are a disaster to all the people around them. They are self-destructive. This kind of warfare was critical for their spiritual protection. But this type of warfare was also critical for Israel's uh, physical protection as well. These uh, Amalekites are vicious enemies, and they're pretty much determined to be enemies of Israel for forever. Because of Saul's unfaithfulness here, they will continue to attack Israel all throughout 1 Samuel. We'll hear from them again in 1 Samuel 30. And not only that, you'll notice there the king's name is Agag the king. Most scholars don't actually think his his first name was Agag. They think this was more of like a title for the king. Uh, the, the royal title for the king of the Malachites was Agag. And this is very curious to me because we see later that another Agag shows up as an enemy of Israel. Why? Because Israel was unfaithful to root out the Amalekites from the beginning. You may be familiar with Haman, the Agite. In Esther 3.1, Haman apparently was of a line of enmity against Israel. And matter of fact, it's very ironic because Mordecai, the man that Haman is so, so invested in getting rid of, happens to be a Benjaminite. And not just any Benjaminite, he is of the line of Kish. So there was physical protection as well in this kind of warfare. But one more thing about this type of warfare to kind of explain it. This wasn't to be Israel's stance against all their enemies. This kind of judgment was carefully prescribed and governed by God. He said, this people over here you will do this to, and this people over there, but these people you will not. Typically, their usual practice was to treat their enemies by, by much more merciful ways. They would say, hey, we're about to attack you. Do you want to make peace with us? And then they wouldn't wipe them all out. This wasn't their typical stance, just against the people that God had chosen. So, so what do we make of this? What do we make of these instances of God's vengeance and violence, frankly? Here's, here's two conclusions that you should make about this God of vengeance. First off, you should conclude that this is frightening. Right? God is frightening against sinners. Against those who continually reject Him, He is frightening. Sin is serious. Not only that, sin has generational consequences. Willful rebellion against God is passed down like an inheritance, like a bad inheritance from generation to generation. This is frightening. Another conclusion you should make about this, however, is that this is right. God is right to do this. If this judgment is prescribed and limited and governed by God... It is holy, it is righteous, and it is just. It is right. Remember what Psalm 1830 says, this God, His way, is perfect. Right? Psalm 32, 4, the rock, His work is perfect. Uh, Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? This is right action by God. 
Unless we are tempted to start to nitpick and critique God's ways, let me put this in the most accurate terms I possibly can for you today. The scandal here is not about who gets wrath. The scandal is always about who gets mercy. That is always the scandal. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we also see in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not a scandal that people get wrath. It's a scandal that people get grace. That is the scandal. So why is God doing this? This this is not a a rash or sudden judgment on his part. This is promised judgment. Remember that. Uh, This is determined in God's plan from the ages against those who are hardened in their disobedience. This is God's active and determined stance against sinners. This is God who is slow to anger, coming to the end of his patience with sinners who repeatedly reject him. And by the way, this does tie in to the main point of our passage. Remember, remember the the point, the conclusion of our story is God requires obedience. And God judges disobedience as well. God just judges disobedience with this active resistance uh, or uh, judgment to them. Those who are actively resisting his rule and his reign receive this judgment from God. For example, the Canaanites. Why were they judged? They were judged because they rejected God's right to rule after generation and after generation after generation. They said in their minds and in their hearts, we'd rather lock ourselves up in our cities and defend ourselves to the last man than submit and humble our hearts to this God. That's what they were saying. The Amalekites were saying... Essentially the same thing. They were also rejecting God's rule. They said, we want to attack God's people while they are weak and while they are defenseless, so their God will have no power over us. And Saul also thought this way as well, right? He also rejected God's rule in his life. He chose superficial, half-hearted, self-defined obedience to basically say, I don't want God to rule in my life. I want to rule in my life. He rejected God's rule and reign. And this kind of rejection of God leads to God's judgment. Oh, one more statement. One more statement about this God of vengeance. This is not the sinner's only option, right? If you are among the condemned, even in the Old Testament, your, 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 your hope is, you have a hope that, that God will spare you. For example, remember, Rahab was among the condemned. But what happened to her? She said, I have heard about this God and I repent. I am turning to this God. I'm going to hide his spies so that I can plead for his mercy. And God heard her cry. Another example, Nineveh was among the condemned. In Jonah 3, verse 1, uh, God tells his prophet, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And what what was Jonah's message? Jonah 3, 4 tells us, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is God's message to Nineveh. Judgment is coming. But what happened? Uh, Jonah 3, 5 tells us, And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth uh, sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Verse 9. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And verse 10 is the real zinger, by the way. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You don't have to be among the condemned. You can humble your heart and turn to God and be saved. What do we make of this God of revenge? He will respond in just judgment against rebellion. But he will also show gracious mercy and grace to those who humble their heart and turn to him. And this actually leads into our our final and very brief question. What do we make of this God of regret? Verse 11, verse 35, verse 29. What do we make of this? Is the author hoping we wouldn't see this? Is is this a contradiction in the Bible? Does God change his mind or not? Well, theologically, we understand verse 29 speaks to us about one of God's perfections, his attributes, his immutability. That is, God will not, cannot change in his nature ever. He is not driven by his emotions, his Feelings are all of them self-determined. Yeah, just think about it. If God was driven by emotions or by anything, he would be then subject to change. And if God could change, that would mean he'd either be changing for the better or for the worse, and that would mean he is somehow no longer perfect or wasn't perfect. If God can change, he is not God. Therefore, he must be unchanging, immutable in his nature and in his perfections. And by the way, on a pastoral aside, this is great. This is glorious. This is wonderful. If your salvation depended on a God who had passions like you, you would have no hope whatsoever. Here's the gospel as clear as I can make it to you today. God will not have mood swings with your mood swings. And that is something to be greatly thankful for. God does not change. Therefore, you, as it says in Malachi, are not consumed. What's going on here theologically in our passage, though? Uh, Verse 11 and 35 are the same word as verse 29. It talks about God's regret. It's a strong emotional term used in Genesis 6 to speak of God regretting the sin of the world. And in parallel in that verse, it says God is filled with pain. It's a strong emotional term. It's a, it could be described as an anthropomorphic 
term. We use anthropomorphic language sometimes to speak of God in terms that we understand, like God has hands and feet and, and eyes. But those are just terms we attach to God to understand Him. He doesn't actually have hands or feet or eyes outside of the person of Christ. There, there is a danger here of just taking that idea of anthropomorphic language and saying, oh, this is just an anthropomorphic expression and kind of sweeping it under the rug of that, right? God actually does have emotions and feelings, but just not like you or I have them. We attach this language to God, but we need to be careful to remember He is always different other than us. Scripture says He is grieved by sin. Scripture says he is grieved by Saul's disobedience. And we need to remember, sin grieves God. Grieves him deeply. Remember Jesus stomping and snorting in anger at the grave of Lazarus. Which your translations kind of gloss over by saying he wept. He was angry at sin and sin's consequences in that moment. In this passage and in comparative ones, we learn something else about this God and how he is different than us. God does not experience all of these emotions at, in sequence like we do. God knows everything that's ever going to happen in your life at every moment, and he knows it all. He is everywhere, all-knowing. If God is grieved, this grief is never outside his eternal, self-determined will. God responds to sin like He does here in an eternal, self-determined way. God planned to respond this way from the beginning. Before the foundation of the world, He was planning to respond to Saul this way. And here is the zinger. God is grieved by sin, but He also plans to change and repent in grace towards sinners. He is spring-loaded, ready to respond in grace to whoever will come to Him. Why do you think? No, why, why really? Why do you think Jonah was so against going to Nineveh? Oh, was it because the walk was long? No, it says this in Jonah 4.2, it displeased Jonah to see the repentance of the city. Exceedingly, he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, that that is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus? For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, therefore... Oh, God, please take my life. I think that's how he said it. Look, look at that, what Jonah is saying. I knew you would do this. I knew you were this way. I knew you would respond with changing your mind towards Nineveh. That's why I never wanted to go and tell them this news in the first place, because I knew you would do this. Here in Saul... Saul was planning, uh, God was planning rather, to respond to Saul's sinfulness all along. And I think in my imagination, this is what God was doing. I am determining to allow these people to pick a king in their own image like the king they would choose. So that they can see the sinfulness of their own heart. 
So they can realize how corrupt and how lost they are without me. So that they can turn to me and look to me for guidance. That is why God did what he did. Therefore, we must hold, verse 11 and verse 29, intention. God is not to be analyzed and perfected or uh, perfectly coherent in our minds, though. He is to be worshipped and adored. God does not change. Yes, he is not grieved or surprised by sin as we are, as though it is something unplanned happening. But at the same time, we need to remember that God is never indifferent towards sin. He isn't nonchalant about your sin. He isn't nonchalant about my sin. He is grieved towards sin. He is not impassive. He is impassioned, always self-determined. He is not indifferent towards me or my sin. Therefore, I should not be indifferent towards me or my sin. But remember, God is also never indifferent towards genuine repentance. God plans to grieve and repent and change his mind. This is your God. He cannot be tamed. He cannot be tricked by your external acts, by your sacrifices. He is not fooled. He is frightening. His promises of judgment are frightening. But notice he is also good. You can trust Him. You can draw near to Him, remembering that He is a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. To borrow the words in closing of Dane Ortland in the book that I have truly begun to enjoy, Gentle and Lowly, the Gospel shows us that we are automatically automatically inclined to think wrongly of God. We must work every single day to think about God rightly. He isn't someone spring-loaded towards us in anger, but he must be provoked towards anger. He is not somebody on the flip side that needs to be provoked and conjoled towards mercy. He is spring-loaded towards mercy and spring-loaded towards mercy and grace towards us. We have him all the other way around. Exodus 34 talks about all of God's goodness. And how does it describe God's goodness? It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Notice there, God is slow to anger. That means God is long-snouted. He doesn't need to be provoked to mercy. He is spring-loaded towards mercy and patience. He is provoked to anger on the opposite side. But notice, He is still one who visits iniquity. Otherwise, His mercy and grace would be like nothing to us. He would be just a big softy. But notice the contrast. He is provoked to wrath to third and fourth generation, but notice he is faithful and steadfast love to thousands. Three and four versus a thousand. So why why should you go to God? Why should you run to this God in repentance? Because you can hope to find grace in him. Because he is not a man like you. 
He does not change like you change. He is God, the great God, and he is unchanging in his goodness towards you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this great news of your grace tucked away in this surprising passage of your judgment. We pray that we would be slow to believe in your wrath if we are in Christ. We'd be slow to believe that you are angry at us, and we'd be quick to hope in your grace and in your mercy at all times. I pray that you would use this to motivate us to share the good news of Christ with whoever we come in contact with. pray this in your name. Amen.